Okay. Philippians chapter 1. The way to joy. Right? Don't we all need a little more joy in our lives right now in these crazy times? And this is going to be part two. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Open up with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. And the word of our Lord. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just that it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to your Spirit. Lord God, that we would be illuminated, enlightened today, that we would be able to see deeply into your enlightened Word. And that, Lord God, you would take your Word and you would place it within our hearts, plant seeds, let them germinate, let them grow, Lord God, let them bring forth and harvest Lord, 30, 60, 100 times, which you will sow in us today. And Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, as we began looking last week at Philippians, the purpose, and there is a clear purpose of every book in the Bible, the purpose of Philippians, God gives us the keys that can open the door to joy. The word joy is used 16 times in four chapters. The word rejoice is used four times in four chapters. And the name of Jesus is used 50 times. You're going to see that there is a connection there between what is true joy and Jesus Christ. So Paul here again, he writes these spirit-inspired words. Where was he when he wrote? He was in prison. I want you to, I want you to see... The word that the Lord gave me this morning as I was reading 2 Corinthians chapter 6.10, and this is the first part of the verse. Let, you know, we use it, uh, I use letter A. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. How can that be, right? What a paradox. That our hearts could actually be aching, but you can still have that supernatural joy of the Lord. Paul's in prison. He has a... Roman soldier that's with him 24-7. It's the last place that you would think a book would be written about joy. And he writes this incredible book for us all. That it's not what's happening to us. It's what's happening in us that brings joy. So let's enter in today. We're going to look at a, a number of more principles that he lays out about joy. The first is the joy of genuine can you say that with me? Genuine love for others. The joy of genuine love for others. And, and as I just read to you, I want you to, to see here, 
Paul, he here says, I thank my God every, uh, upon every remembrance of you, right? I, I've got you right in my memories. Then he says, I've got you in my prayers. Down in verse 7, I've got you in my thoughts. Again in verse 7, I've got you in my heart. And then down in verse 8, he says, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, in that passage, I want you to notice love is never mentioned. Agape is, is never mentioned, not once. But what you have here is a beautiful picture of, of one side of agape, because there are two sides of this wonderful love called agape, this, this godly love. There's an inside to this love, and there's an outside to this love. The inside is a deep, genuine affection, uh, call it empathy, compassion, for the people in our lives. The outside of agape is action. So an inner side and an outer side of true, genuine agape love. Now I want to show you, I want to show you something here. There was a study, an 85-year study. That's a long time for right, the educators, the researchers to do a study. An 85-year study done by Harvard University of what makes people truly happy, what makes them healthy, what enables them to live long, and what defines a good life. Now you stop and ask yourself that question, and you would probably think, right, it's money, right? It's their career. Right? It's their achievements. Right? And the study basically found that the thing, the one thing that brings the greatest amount of fulfillment is friendships. True, genuine friendships. Of having that connection with other human beings. I want to give you a little secret here. Can I give you a little secret? You ever see President Biden when he starts going, oh my God, I'm going to do that with you. So you have to lean in. I'm going to tell you a little secret. If you want a friend, you got to be a friend. I hear people say, I got no friends. Well, are you being a friend to anyone? People say, no one calls me. Well, do you call anyone? If you want to, if you want to have friends, you, you need to reach out and you need to connect with them. You need to call them. Maybe they're not around here, but you know, I have, I, I have five friends that I grew up with. One, we've been friends since we were five years old. When he's up here, he comes to church. Mark. Uh, another friend that I, I, he's been a friend since we were like eight years old. John. And then there's Jerry. I mean, you got, but you have to work at it. You know, you you got to reach out because sometimes our, you know, they're all professional. They're all professional men, and they have careers. They have businesses. They, you know, they're they're successful men, and they're busy as I'm busy. But you got to make time to cultivate, you know, those relationships. You got to make time to, you know, again, pick up the phone and make a call when they're in town or you're in town. You you know, to spend some time with each other. But that, 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 is, that is the secret, right, to friendship. And I'll tell you, it brings 
tremendous joy. And it starts from within. It starts from the inside. So look, look, at, the, look at the passage where Paul says, I have you in my prayers. He carries around the Philippians in his prayers. Right? You ever just carrying around people? You know, people, maybe they're in the fire. Right? They're going through that challenge. They're going through that difficult time. And you just carry them around and, and you're, you know, you're lifting them up. You're lifting them up in your prayers. You're concerned about them. You know, that, that love just is, it, it drives you to, to pray for them. Hey, something, people come up to you in church. People come up to me all the time and say, oh, pastor, can you pray for me? I see people do this, right? Can you pray for me? You know, yeah, 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 I'll pray for you. And then they walk away. If someone asks you to pray for them, stop what you're doing and pray for them. I don't know if you notice that I do. When you come up to me and you say, oh, Pastor Frank, can you pray for me? I'm not like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you next week. I'll pray for you. No, you just stop and you pray for them. You lift them up in prayer right there on the spot. You're going to find as, as you do that, suddenly the Holy Spirit, He puts that burden, and you're not going to only pray for them right there on the spot. You're going to have them on your heart, and you're going to be praying for them as the days that follow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, New Living Translation, and you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Paul here is saying to the Corinthians, I have been delivered from death. In fact, he goes on to say in the first ten verses, I was on the verge of death. They, they were about to kill me. And God answered your prayers, and your prayers brought the help of God into my life. So when we are, we are praying for people, we are helping them. When we're praying for people, God can be working and healing them. God could be working and saving them. God could be working and comforting them. There's, there's great you know, power in, in, in prayer. And I'll tell you something that I, I like to do when I'm here on Wednesdays. If we're going to break up and pray in you know, different areas of the church, when we pray in groups, sometimes we've been, we've been actually praying as a whole group these past weeks. I'll just like to sit back and I look out and I just pray for people, one after another. Pray for everybody who's in the room. And sometimes I know what specifically to pray for. And sometimes I don't know what to pray for. And I'll just open myself up to the Spirit. And sometimes the Spirit will reveal to me things that I should be praying for for that person. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And I just will pray, your will be done in their life. But I will just pray. I'll pray for one person after another, after another, after another. And it's interesting, from that experience, sometimes I'm leaving and as I'm praying, maybe later on that night or in the morning, God will put that person on my heart. That there was maybe something going on. They're in a struggle. There's a difficulty. Maybe they need, they need deliverance or they need a healing or something you know, is going on in a relationship. But you pray for them. So he says, I, I, I have you in my prayers. That's a, a key, again, component of, of genuine love. Second, he says, I have you in my mind. Right? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you. Right? Sometimes you're thinking about people, and it could be you're thinking about happy things. Sometimes you may be thinking about sad things. Sometimes you may be thinking of someone, and it brings a smile to your face. And other times it could bring tears to your eyes. 
Paul says of the Philippians, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, he's, he's remembering, he had a great experience with the Philippians. And he is thinking these joyful thoughts of them while he's in prison. And he's just got them, again, he's got them in there, you know, in his mind. Then he says, I have you in my heart. So he's, he's carrying them at the very center of his being, the center of his life. Think about this. What you think about most, what you focus on most, essentially is what is in your heart. Your heart is the place of your deepest desires, your values. Paul has desires for the Philippians. He, has, he values them deeply. Think about this. You know, you ever hear, you know, people are self-centered? That's most people. That's most people in the church. As compared to being Christ-centered, which leads us to be other-centered. But he, he has them in his heart. He, they are at the center of his life. These Philippian Christians are there in his heart, surrounding the very throne of the Lord who sits on the throne of his heart. And then uh, he says, I have you in my emotions. Look at that picture. Because the, the word that Paul uses here is the bowels of Christ. <laughs> I, I, I have you in my bowels. Think about this, your bowels, right? There are more neurons, okay, nerve connectors, in this part of our body than in our brains. More neurons here. Think about it. When, when you are experiencing emotional pain, where do you feel it? You don't feel it here. You feel it in your gut. Or you experience butterflies, right? The butterflies aren't around your brain, the butterflies are, are, are here again in your, in your gut. And, and he, is, he is saying here, I, I've got you in, in the deepest part of my emotions. I've got you in my emotions. I've got you in my heart. I've got you on my mind. I've got you in my person. Think about this. There are some people, right? You've got them under your skin. There's some people, you've got them on your nerves. I just want to say this to you. So do I. Paul, Paul did too. Demas, right? You, you think about some of the people that were giving Paul a heart. The Corinthians. The, I, I don't think Paul could have said of the Corinthians, right? Of what he said of the Philippians. But I think the, the, the Corinthians were on Paul's nerves. They were under Paul's skin. But here he says of the Philippians, you know, I've got you, I've got you in my prayers, I've got you in my heart, I've got you on my mind, and I've got you in my emotions. That's, that's the inner side of agape. Now, Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is on the inside is always going to flow to the outside. When, when you have, right, those people within you, and they're in your prayers, and they're in your heart, and they're in your mind, that's going to flow out in words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of compassion, words of empathy. And it will move us to action. Now this is where we call it sloppy agape. <laughs> Seen a lot of sloppy agape in the church through the years. Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, we love you, oh, we love, we love you, we love, oh, we love you. 
That's what people saying this to me. Oh, pastor, we love you. You're the best pastor in the world. And I say something that they disagree with or they don't like. Man, let me tell you. If they could, they would take out a knife and stab me right in the back. Come on, are you kidding me? Sloppy agape. That's not, that's not true, genuine agape love. True, genuine agape love is not touchy-feely. Yeah, it is, it is deeply rooted in emotion. But then it, it always works itself out in action. Well, let's say, look at what, what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, 16 and 17 under the inspiration of the Spirit. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Right? It's, it's false. If, if, you, if you say you love somebody, okay, you say you've got that love in your heart, well, you know what? It's going to flow through your lips. It's going to flow to your hands. It's going to flow to your feet. How many of you ever seen the movie, The... Machine Gun Preacher. It's a good movie. It's a true story. I wouldn't recommend that young kids watch it. And if you don't have a gut for what's really happening in the world, I wouldn't recommend that you watch it because it's going to disturb you. It disturbed me. It's a, it's a guy, he was a, he was a biker who gets saved out in uh, Pennsylvania. Tough, tough, tough biker. Crazy biker. Jail in jail and stuff. He gets saved he gets delivered, uh, he gets called, he starts a church, and then he sees what's happening in Uganda and the Sudan, something that's still going on, where they are going in, and you can see this with Boko Haram, some of you from Nigeria, you, you know, you've, you've probably, you know, you know about this up north, that they go in and they basically kill all the parents in a village, mother and father, they kill them all, and they kidnap the children. The girls are put into slave labor, sexual labor, and little kids. And then the boys are taught how to kill. They become their warriors. Little boys, like, like the kids in our Sunday school. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old. So this preacher, he sees this, and he goes to um, the Sudan, and he builds a church, and he builds an orphanage, and he goes out. And he starts killing the bad guys and rescuing the kids. He's my kind of man. He's a man of action. He's trying to, he's trying to get, get funding here in the United States, and there's no funding coming for him. He's going to businesses, and I think he was going to the wrong places. Businesses are not the best place to go for funding for the Christian mission. I think he's now, he's now after the movie. I think he's getting good funding going in there. But he, he basically, he, he was a man of act. He saw, he saw evil. He saw these wrongs being done. And it wasn't just, oh, I'll pray about it. He did something about it. And he saved, he saved hundreds of kids' lives. 450,000 people have been murdered by this warlord in the Sudan and in Uganda. And that's from a number of years ago. It's probably now a million people. But he, he, saw, he saw it, and again, his, he, his heart, he had these kids in his heart. He had them in his thoughts. It was literally an obsession of helping them and saving them. But he did something about it. Instead of just sitting there. Which is what you see with most of Christianity. Or what's called Christianity. People, they, you know, they see, they see the people on TV, right? The, the kids with the cleft lip. 
Or they're, or they're looking and, and they're seeing the people right now in the Ukraine, right, who have, I mean, they've lost hands and, and feet and uh, the hospitals are so filled. Ukraine is, it's getting destroyed. People don't believe what the media is telling you that the Ukrainians are winning the war. They're getting, de they're getting decimated. They've lost about 400,000 soldiers. You know what the Russians have lost? About 50,000. And we keep funding them and with propaganda from the media. Oh, they're winning, they're winning, they're winning. You start listening to some of the generals, they're saying they're getting killed. They need to broker a peace there so that more of these innocent people don't die. And it's the politicians, the politicians on each side. And the, it's the poor people, the civilian people who are dying. But you know, you, you, you see these things. Or you hear about a need in the church. So, you know, I really feel compassion for that. But you don't do anything. You don't give anything. That's not true agape. That's not genuine agape. Genuine agape has hands. Genuine agape has feet. And genuine agape has a mouth. That's true agape. And if we're true Christians, we should have true agape in our lives, right? Or maybe we're fooling ourselves. Second, the joy of growing. The joy of, of, of growing, the joy of the growing. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. That your love may abound, may overflow, may grow, that agape love may increase more and more and notice he says, in knowledge and all discernment. So love needs, to, love needs to have wisdom. Love needs to be discerning. So when I got saved, started the church here, a lot of people in need. And I had this uh, one guy who came to me. He'd come to church. And... Um, he called me on the phone on a Saturday morning and he said, I need $500 or I'm going to be thrown out of my apartment and be on the street. I need $500 or I'm going to be thrown out on the street. And the church didn't have $500 to give him, but I had $500 to give him. So I said to him, meet me at the church and I'll give you the $500. Like 12 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm upstairs and he comes up the stairs. I give him $500 cash. And he leaves. I go into my office. I'm telling you this. This happened within like two minutes. My phone rings. I pick it up. It's his roommate who says to me, he doesn't need the $500 for the rent. He's going out to buy drugs. So that happened to me a number of times. That's love without discernment. That's, that's love without knowledge. People come, they, 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 think they, they think I'm a banker. They, they think the church is a bank. Okay, well, you don't need money, I need money, I need money. But it, it, love has to have discernment. Now, I don't know of a greater area in our lives to grow in than to grow in love. Right, is, is there? I mean, I, I, you know, greater than faith, greater than hope, Greater than love, right? Do you realize when we go to be with the Lord, we're not going to need faith and we're not going to need hope? But love is something that we will still, we will still live in. To grow in love is to grow in Christ-likeness. To grow in love is to be conformed to the very image of Jesus. 
In Philippians, and I'll jump ahead here to chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Notice that you, you work out your own salvation, but God is also working in us. So I'll give you a, a picture again. Two, two sides. Two sides of growth. There's the, the human side. And notice it says work out. It, it takes effort. It's, it's, you, have to, you have to labor. You really have to work at improving and getting better. To grow more and more like Yeshua. And then there's the divine side where God works in you. Empowering you. Equipping you. Right? Energizing you. Encouraging you. I'll use a... Uh, excuse me for this poor illustration that I'm going to give you. And in no way do I think God looks like the guy with the green shirt. Like an athlete, we, we, we work out, right? We work out our salvation. We're, we're training in godliness. We're disciplining ourselves in prayer, in Bible study, in service, in worship, in giving. While God coaches us. And the difference is, He not only coaches us from the outside, He coaches us from the inside, and He inspires us, He encourages us, He enlightens us, He teaches us, He motivates us. The two sides. I'm working. I'm working out, right? My salvation, but God is working in, infusing me. I'll give you an acronym here. This is one of my acronyms of life. It's called CANI. C-A-N-I. How many of you know what that stands for? I thought some of you on Wednesday would remember our growth series. CANI. What does it stand for? Continuous and never-ending improvement. Continuous and never-ending improvement. I think that is one of the greatest journeys of life. That gets me up in the morning. That gets me up in the morning. That gets me excited. That gets juiced. Every day gives me an opportunity to improve, to grow. And that is a, a, a journey of, of joy. So you're sitting there. You're unhappy with your relationship with God. You're not experiencing that, that meaning and fulfillment in your relationship with God. Let me tell you, you know what's a wonderful thing? You can change it right now. You can change it this morning by repenting of your sins and obeying God in whatever area He's asking you to do it. You can change it right now. That's the, the wonder of can I? You may be sitting there and saying, well, my marriage isn't very good. Well, you know what the wonder and again the beauty is? You can change. You can change your marriage right now. By making a decision to begin to love your spouse, to beginning to care for your spouse, to beginning to listen to your spouse, and understand your spouse, and give to your spouse. You can change. Right now, you can change your marriage right now. And you're sitting there and saying, you know what, my health isn't very good. I'll give you some great news. The great news is, right now you can make a decision to begin to change your health. Right now you can make a decision to continuously and never-ending improve your health and begin to care for yourself. Oh, my career. My career is going nowhere. I'm really unhappy with my career. Well, again, you can make the decision right now to begin to improve your career. 
You can make that decision. You can make that choice right now to do that. You're sitting there and saying, well, you know, my finances. I'm in a hole. I'm in debt. I've got financial problems. Well, you can make the decision right now to change your financial situation. You can make that decision right now to begin to operate differently, financially, according to the, the Word of God. But you can change. See, I love, can I? I mean, again, I, I love this great journey of joy of continuously and never-endingly improving. I love to work on myself. I love to yield to God and to get His instructions and to learn His principles and implement them in my life because it always brings positive change. I love working on my communication skills. If you notice, this is what I do. I love working on my teaching skills. I love working on my mind. I, maybe this is why I love so much the iron game. I've been in the iron game since I was 15 years old, 16 years old. Because you can always improve. right? You can always lift. And you may be sitting going, well, is he lifting as much as he was when he was 20? No. But I'm being challenged at this time in my life to be able to be strong. And that's why I love the martial arts. Because the martial arts, is just, it's a never-ending journey. But the greatest of all is the spiritual journey. The spiritual journey of growing and being conformed into the image of Jesus. And that is an exciting, exciting journey. And I'm telling you this. It gets me up in the morning. It, it gets me excited. And what I'm doing with you right now, I do this here in the church two hours a week. There's another 166 hours where I live out my faith. Where I'm not talking, for the most part. I live out my faith. And I, I live it out with, again, a level of joy and a level of excitement of growth. Now I want to introduce you to four people. These are four people that you've met. You may find yourself as being one of these four people. These are four people that I've met in all areas of life. You have the hacker. On a golf course, a hacker is somebody who goes out and plays golf occasionally, and basically they hack up the entire golf course because they seem to have a problem hitting the ball. They're usually hitting the turf and shooting it through the air, and they call them a hacker. They don't seek coaching. They don't seek to get lessons. They don't go to the driving, lane, uh, driving range to work on their game. Hackers are people, they just settle for mediocrity. They settle for apathy. It's okay being average. I am what I am. This is the way I've always been, and this is the way I'll always be. They never work on improving themselves. They never work to get better. They never work to grow. They're the same yesterday, and today, and for the rest of their life. By the way, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're not supposed to be. We're supposed to grow. That's the hacker. And then you've got the dabbler. The dabbler is someone, you see them in sports, you see them in hobbies, and you see them in the church. They dig a little. It gets kind of hard. It gets challenging. It gets difficult. And then they're on to something else. You see this with what are called church hoppers. They, they hop from church 
to church, to church, to church. And they never get grounded. They never get rooted. They never get involved serving, giving, using their life to build the kingdom of God. They just hop, 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 hop. And they dabble. And that, you see that again in everything. You see, dabblers, when I was in the gym business, the dabblers would come in, they'd sign up, and they were gone two weeks later, three weeks later. Like you see it in business, you see it in the dojo, and you see it in the church. G.K. Chesterton, he said this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I totally believe that. Those are dabblers. And then you have the obsessive. The obsessive person, they start with zeal. They're gung-ho. They're passionate. They're juiced. They're pumped up. They're excited for a day or two. Maybe a week or two. A month or two. And then the challenges come. The obstacles come. And they quit. And they disappear. The fourth person, I call them the can I disciple. The person who works at continuous and never ending improvement. And they just climb the ladder. They climb the ladder. And they enter into this journey of growth because it's so joyful. I want to say this to you. Understand this about growth. And this, this is true of anything. Anything. Most people, and I'll tell you, it's a more realistic view, but most people think that growth is linear. Right? Maybe a couple of little bumps in the road. So that's what a lot of people think marriage is like. Marriage is just linear. I've been married for 40 years. I want to tell you it's not. Raising kids is linear. It's not. Your spiritual walk with Jesus is not linear. You ever see a, a, a stock that grows? You see, it's, it's, it's not quite like that. Or if you have a business or your career, this is more what growth looks like. Look at this. Right? All of a sudden, you're making progress. And then, oh no! Now you're making progress again. It's like, wee! And then all of a sudden, boom! I don't even want to use those words that are there. And all of a sudden, it's here we go. And then, right, hang on. And yeah, baby, oh, crap. Woo! Not again. And that's just, that's just the way that we grow. The person who practices can I continuously works through that process. They don't give up. They don't quit. They don't dabble. And they don't hack. All right, final one. The joy of excellence. So the joy of genuine love, the joy, right, of excellence, the joy of growth. In verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Notice the, the word excellence. What is, what is excellence? Excellence is basically just Doing your best. Excellence is being your best. Excellence is giving your best. Serving your best. Your best. It's not perfection. Perfect P 
people or people who think they're perfect who strive for perfection will drive you crazy. They drive their children crazy. They drive their pastor crazy. But most of all, they drive themselves crazy because perfection is not attainable in this life. Excellence is not perfection. Excellence is just doing your best. Giving your best. Right? Look at, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Notice what it says. As you excel in some things, as you excel in, you know, the things that you're really interested in. As you excel in your business, but, you know, forget about the rest. What does he say? But as you excel in everything. You excel in everything you do. You excel in your service. You excel in your worship. You, you expel, uh, excel in your words. You, you excel in, in the things that you act upon, your behaviors. You're always seeking to give your best. Your best. Not my best. Not someone else's best. It's only your best. I can't compete with John MacArthur. I can't compete with Chuck Swindoll. I don't want to compete with them. I don't want to compare myself with them. The only person I can compete with is me. And I'm the only one, right, that I can really focus on at doing my best, giving my best. Right? That, that is excellence. Look at Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24. And whatever you do, can you say that with me? Whatever. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever. Whatever you do, you give it your best. See, here's... A, here's a delusion. I say this to people. Speak to people and they're entrepreneurs. They're trying to get a business off the ground. And uh, they're like, wow, I, I give my business everything I got. How about the company you're working for? How about the company you're working for that pays you? Are you giving your very best to them? Or only to your new little business? Because, you see, that, that, that's where the delusion comes in. Excellence permeates the entire life. Excellence affects everything. The, the man or woman with excellence. And they strive for excellence when they're cooking breakfast. Try to make the best omelet they can make. They strive, they strive for excellence when they're working in their career. And they strive for excellence when they're loving their spouse. It permeates everything. Everything. When, when you strive to do the best you can do and give the best you can give and serve the best you can serve, when you strive to be that person, what you'll find eventually it just becomes a habit. That whatever you put your hand to, you're going to do it with all your might. 
Ecclesiastes 10.9. That's the picture of excellence. It is, it is an attitude, it is a mindset that permeates your entire life. Not just the one little thing you're doing. It affects everything. Ex excellence, well, I started a corporation called Excel to Success. And I have taught excellence to people for the past 25 years. But I saw, I saw the incredible value of excellence as I began to apply and biblical Christian excellence to my own life. I don't wing it. You know, the average preacher prepares their message. I think something like 80% of preachers prepare their messages on Saturday night. My message is finished next week and the outline is done for the next week. How could I possibly come before you and ask you to be excellent in what you're doing and come here and be mediocre or apathetic? Excellence. It, 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 again, it, it needs to permeate your life. Not just my preaching, but everything else I do. Everything. To be excellent in all areas of your life. To be excellent in your time management. Let me exhort some of you with this. You want to go far in life? Be on time. Let me tell you, don't just be on time. Be early. Be early. I just, my wife just told me this. She's working uh, as an assistant athletic director in the school she's in. And um, they're looking to hire a new athletic trainer. And one guy calls up. <laughs> he's an interview. And, and he says his car broke down. If I had an interview with my career, let me tell you something. I will Uber it. I mean, if I have to walk there, I'm going to get there for the interview. And so the, the principal, he, the athletic director, he just, he just blew him off. He's not coming in for it. And then the next guy comes in, and he's five minutes late. And then after the interview, right, he did the interview, but he just said to my wife, he's, he's not getting a job because he was late. I'm, I, I operate the, the same way. To me, that's just a, a fundamental principle. And we as Christians, excellence, don't you think the appointment with God on a Sunday morning should be important to you? Well, you don't understand. I got kids. I got, listen, my daughter, she's a single mother with two kids, and she's here on time for everything that she does. But that's just, again, it, per, it permeates your entire life. It, per, it, it permeates your health, it affects your health, it affects your mind, it affects your relationships. That's excellence. And it brings great joy. You know how good you feel when you, you, just, you just did your best. You didn't outdo anybody else. You just, you just went in and whatever you put your hand, you did your best. Don't you feel good when you do that? I just got to ask you this because it's, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since I did this. How do you feel when you engage in something and you do it half-heartedly. How does that make you feel? Write me a letter and tell me how it makes you feel. Because I, I, I don't know. I will not do something, and I say no. People are like, oh, can you come and do this? Can you? No, 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 no. I will not do something if I'm not going to do it my best. That's just a, a, a simple principle. If, if somebody presents something, and if I'm going to do it Oh man, I, you know, sometimes you just don't want to do something. 
Sometimes you got, you got just no excitement about, just Jesus said, let your yes, uh, yes be yes, your no be no, right? And I'm just, just say no. But I'm going to do something. I want to come and give it my best. And that makes me feel good. That brings me joy. So here's our wrap up, okay? Key application. I want to read to you this little poem that I came across. Tender teens, teachable 20s, tireless 30s, fiery 40s, forceful 50s, serious 60s, sacred 70s, aching 80s, shortening breath, death, the sod, God. Isn't that good? I wish I wrote it. The average lifespan for a man in the United States is 74 years. The average lifespan for a woman is 79 years. I'm just going to take the man here for a second. That's 888 months, 3,848 weeks, 27,010 days, and 648,240 hours. That's the time you have. In Philippians, as I said to you at the beginning of the message this week and last week, the word joy or rejoice is used 20 times in four chapters. The name of Jesus is used 50 times in four chapters. Do you see the connection? I mean, you only got so many months, so many weeks, so many years to live. Don't you want to live it with joy? And if you look at Jesus, again, where this joy comes from, because... This is, again, supernatural joy that comes from God. It's not the happiness of the world. It depends on happenings. Just want you to, to notice Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? Sometimes people like, you know, when they, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be more, you know, more kind. Or, you know, there are so many wonderful aspects in the life of Jesus. So here's one. Jesus was excellent. Look at what the people said in Mark chapter 7, 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He mo makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The word, there, the word there, well, is kalos. It speaks of everything he did, he did to the full. Like, he didn't heal the people. Like, he didn't heal the deaf guy in one ear and leave the other ear, right? He healed, he healed them completely. Right, when he healed the blind, he didn't just heal one eye and leave the other eye blind. Everything Jesus did, he did with excellence. There was no place for mediocrity. There was no place for apathy. Everything he did, he did with excellence. Great lesson to learn there. The closer we get connected to Jesus, I think the more excellent of a life we'll live. Notice the second thing about Jesus. He grew. As the incarnate Son of God, in his humanity, he grew. It tells us in Luke chapter 2, 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew, he grew in wisdom. He grew intellectually. He grew physically in stature. He grew in favor with God. He grew in that spiritual relationship with God, and he grew in favor with man. But he, he grew and then, in John chapter 15, verse 12 to 13, Jesus 
says here to the disciples, and this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his own life for his friends. And he loved. He loved from the inside and he loved to the outside to the extent that he laid down his life as a sacrificial atonement for all of us that he loved. So, he was excellent, right? He grew. He loved. There is no joy without Jesus. Jesus in your life equals joy. Jesus equals joy. I want you to just look at the person next to you and say that. Jesus equals joy. And now look at the person on the other side of you and say that. And now look at the person behind you and say it. Jesus equals joy. Look at the person in front of you and say it. Jesus equals joy. And you see that. That's, that again, that's the theme of Philippians. The more, the closer, the better you know him, come into relationship with him, follow him, the greater the joy becomes. Amen? Amen. Draw close to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. I thank you, Lord God, that your word, Lord, is extremely practical as we go through the book of Philippians. It's easy to wrap our minds around and understand. There is joy in loving people. There is joy in growing and there is joy in living an excellent life. Father, I just pray, Lord God, that you'd impress this upon our hearts. For that joy is the joy that comes to us through the Lord. And we thank you, Lord Jesus.